On the 13th of December in 1815, the Emperor of the Austrian Empire floats across Venice, standing on a seashell. Naked, except for a robe he's holding rather loosely over his body, as though someone in the crowd has thrown it to him, like, dude, put this on. His name is Francis I, and he has four gilded bronze horses with him, which he will take to the Basilica of St. Mark's, the ancient church with the bell tower and pigeons, where the horses still are today, one of the most famous symbols of Venice. And then, presumably, Francis would ascend to heaven on his nautical chariot. Look what I did, you mortals. Well, that's how the scene is depicted anyway, in an engraving from the time. What really happens, if you want to be all factual about it, is that the four bronze horses arrive on a raft, pulled around the east end of Venice. And when they come to the little plaza by the Basilica of St. Mark's, they're unloaded and pulled through ranks of soldiers toward the church, and the soldiers haul them atop the balcony, a loggia over the entrance to the sound of gun salutes and cannon fire. It's a big deal because the horses had been taken by Napoleon 18 years earlier in 1797. And now, with the dictator's defeat, the symbols of Venice have come back. No thanks, really, to Francis. But whatever. Over the next few decades... Tourists come to see the horses, and artists paint them, and they become, like so much of Venice, something that seems to have always been there. Until, in the 1870s, Charles Carl Coleman, an American, decides to paint a picture of them. Coleman goes up to the balcony and paints not just the four bronze horses, but the balcony itself. And in his picture, he puts some chunks of decorative marble and bits of broken columns of one ancient origin or another lying around the balcony. And he shows how the columns supporting the horse's feet are each a little different, taken from here and there. As if to say, these horses, like himself, are not from around here. And he's right. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, a story of conquest and booty, and an artist who understood that you can never escape the past, even if you wanted to. Now, at the end of this episode, stick around to hear a bit of a podcast I've really come to enjoy, and I think you will too. It's called Curious Objects, produced by Antiques Magazine a conversation with experts about the hidden histories of fine art. We're going to share a few minutes of an episode about a very special antique violin, and you can hear the rest in all of the episodes of Curious Objects on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So hang around for that, and now, 
on with our story. I'm Tim Gehring. Okay, we need to go back to the time of the Fourth Crusade. Have you forgotten the Fourth Crusade? Well, even the Pope would like to forget the Fourth Crusade. It was Pope Innocent III who called for the Fourth Crusade in 1198. Basically, he tells the kings of France and England, hey, stop fighting each other and start fighting Muslims in Jerusalem. And to get their attention, he throws in a bunch of taunts that Muslims over in the Holy Land allegedly were saying about France and England. Already we have weakened and shattered the spears of the French and crushed the efforts of the English. They would prefer to fight each other than to experience once more our might and power. And the French and English are like, nah, we're good. So the Pope says, fine, you all get indulgences. Go fight in the Holy Land and your sins are forgiven. And still, the knights are like, nah. Finally, at a tournament, after a few rounds of mead and jousting, a couple of aristocrats say, okay, fine, we'll take up the cross. But we're not going to go by land anymore. We're tired of riding all the way to Jerusalem. So the, the Pope has to go find some boats for these guys. And he finds them in Venice. The Venetians are happy to transport the Crusader armies to the Holy Land in exchange for cold, hard cash. But by the time the armies arrive in Venice, in 1202, ready for their boat ride, the captain of the Crusaders has already died. And not everyone got the memo that they were supposed to rendezvous in Venice. So when the Venetians say, we need our money now, the Crusaders don't have it. The Venetians say, all right, you guys, why don't you attack our enemies instead and bring their money back to us, and then we'll get on to Jerusalem. Why don't you go sack the city of Zara in what is now Croatia? The only problem is, Zara is Catholic. And yet, the Crusaders sack Zara anyway. When the Pope hears of it, he excommunicates the entire Crusader army at first. And then he thinks, well, maybe it's for the best. So they've sacked Zara, and they're ready to get back on the crusade when this Byzantine prince over in Constantinople, now Istanbul, says, hey, I'll I'll give you the money, and I'll send my navy to take you to Egypt. If you come put my dad back on the throne of the Byzantine Empire. And the crusaders say, okay. So the crusaders and the Venetians head over to Constantinople. But the king they put on the throne dies. And when they put the prince on the throne, he strangled to death. And then they realize the money isn't going to come.
Now, Constantinople at the time is the largest Christian city in the world, right? The seat of the Eastern Church. It's thriving. It's like Rome in its heyday, only Christian. But the Crusaders decide we can't leave without our money. So they sack Constantinople. They kill Christians. They rape nuns. They burn the city. And what they don't destroy, they take. They loot churches and melt down ancient bronze statues. And then, when the Crusaders come to the Hippodrome, the enormous horse-racing arena, there are the four bronze horses, gilded with gold, atop the gate. Okay, let's skip ahead to the 1850s, more than 600 years later. When Charles Coleman is an art student in Buffalo, New York, one of his art teachers goes to Europe for a while, and Coleman is inspired to go himself soon after. He goes to Paris and back, and then he goes to Florence for a couple years and comes back. And after fighting in the Civil War, he opens a studio in New York and makes a name for himself as a pretty good artist painting portraits, and the occasional still life. And then, in 1866, he goes back to Italy. Now, a lot of other American and English artists have gone there too, right? In fact, there's already another Charles Coleman in Italy, from England. So our guy goes by Charles Carl Coleman. But in some ways, by 1866... The expat party is already over. And maybe that's what Coleman likes about it. If he wanted to be around other Americans, he would go back to America. But, except for a few brief trips, he doesn't. He stays in Italy for the next 60 years. By December 1866, Coleman is hanging out a shingle in Rome, on the Via Margota, one of the city's most picturesque streets, right in the historic center by the Spanish Steps. As the writer Jeff McGregor put it in Smithsonian Magazine, a short street with a long history. Just three narrow blocks going back 2,000 years. It's where Gregory Peck brings Audrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday to an apartment at Via Margherita 51. Coleman settles in and starts painting street scenes, people walking around the ancient walls, people in folk costumes, with titles like Yesterday, Today, and Forever. To him, all this history and tradition is not just the stuff of museums. The past is always present. Coleman has been in Italy for years when he goes to Venice in the 1870s and climbs up to the balcony of St. Mark's Basilica and sees the four bronze horses. And what he sees is not a famous symbol of the city, a postcard, but a city still reinventing itself around the ancient, still tied to its original sins. When the Crusaders find the horses, 
atop the Hippodrome. The Venetians take them as part of their booty. But when the horses get to Venice, no one quite knows what to do with them. They're basically forgotten for decades until someone gets the idea to put them on the balcony at St. Mark's. And there they stay for the better part of 600 years until Napoleon comes along and takes them. Back in Paris, he wants to hitch the horses to a kind of chariot, quadriga, and put a statue of himself in the chariot, like some kind of Roman emperor. But instead he puts the horses in chariot atop a triumphal arch with a plaque saying, essentially, that they're done wandering now that they're in Paris. They'll never leave now. But of course they do, right? When Napoleon is put out of business at Waterloo, the Pope sends the great old Venetian sculptor Antonio Canova to reclaim the art of Italy. Canova had told Napoleon after he took much of Italy's great art, this is BS, even for a dictator. And Napoleon was like, whatever, go sculpt me naked like a Roman emperor. And Canova did. But now, Canova has the chance to take it all back. And in 1815, he has the horses pulled out of Paris, and the chariot has smashed the pieces. Canova thinks the horses should be put outside a palace, back in Venice, like the war booty that they are. But of course, they're put right back atop St. Mark's, by the emperor on a seashell, or... Something like that. Where people have come to expect them. Venice, after all, is already becoming a museum. Where it's easy to forget the Fourth Crusade. And that many of the Crusaders went home with their loot and only a thousand or so went on to the Holy Land. Or that the schism between the Eastern and Western Church was widened beyond repair. Or that Constantinople, of course, was weakened at the point that Muslims took it over a couple hundred years later. Soon, it's easy to forget the Venetians themselves. By the 1840s, for the first time, there are more tourists than residents. Rome goes the same way. And so, Coleman moves to the island of Capri still fairly remote, still tied to its ancient Roman past. There's an old trope, right, that the United States has no history, and so Americans go looking for it everywhere else. To feel the weight of history in all its complexity and moral ambiguity, and to feel grounded by it. But there is a kind of exquisite tension between wanting things to stay the same and wanting to move on. And in art, if nowhere else, you can live with that tension indefinitely. And this is what Coleman does. He moves into an old convent with a view of Mount Vesuvius and calls it Via Narcissus, 
after the god obsessed with his own reflection. And he grows his beard long until it turns white, and he begins to part it down the middle. And he sometimes wears a tunic, long and billowing, so that he presents like Neptune or Jupiter or some other ancient god. He paints people less and less, and things more and more. Flowers and landscapes and patios overlooking the volcano. And there's almost always an amphora, this kind of ancient two-handled pot, somewhere in the scene, a reminder of the past. Until finally, he's more of a decorative artist than anything else, creating panels for antique furniture. And he's good at it. It's good to be Charles Coleman. To really live with the past and not just put it on a pedestal is to feel incredibly insignificant. And there's a lightness in that, in unburdening ourselves of hubris. We can steal golden horses, but they will never really belong to us. Nothing lasts, except history itself. When Coleman dies in 1928, he's buried in Capri, among the other expats, under a weathered pedestal, plucked from one ruin or another. Beneath this ancient sacrificial altar, the plaque says, are the remains of the artist. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Stay tuned now for a clip from Curious Objects, the podcast of Antiques Magazine, which I hope you enjoy and look for on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Here's the host, Ben Miller, talking with his guests about a 400-year-old Amati violin on the episode Making Music. Okay, I think that's enough of that. Today's curious object is one of the oldest violins in the world. Not the viola you just heard me a total amateur playing, but there is a connection because both instruments actually passed through the hands of my guest for today's interview. There's something I want to do before we get to him, though. On this program, I've talked with people who have all kinds of fascinating old objects. But how many people can say they have a relationship with an antique that's as intimate as that of a musician and her instrument? I wanted to hear from a real live musician about what that relationship is like. Is is your instrument more like a tool for you, or is it like a... A, a pet or or a friend or a lover or <laughs> well, how, how would you characterize wow. that it's I don't want to anthropomorphize it I don't have a name for my violin some people do I don't think of it that way uh, it's less demanding than a pet um, but it is something just it's a deeply beloved object I should introduce the violinist for you that's Katie Lehman executive director of the Boulder Philharmonic she also happens to be my mother. 
I could say all sorts of great things about me and my son. That that really won't be necessary. Your instrument actually came from my guest for for this episode, um, Paul Becker. Mm -hmm. What was it like to to search for that instrument? How many many violins did you try before you settled on this one? Well, it was actually a somewhat unusual search because I had just started to think about getting a much better instrument. And of course, that's an extraordinary financial outlay. So I hadn't yet figured out quite how all of that was going to work. Uh, So I reached out to Paul and said, Paul, you know, I'm looking for an instrument and he knows my playing. He knows my personality. He said, fine, I'll, I'll keep my eye out. And then literally, I don't know whether it was a week or two later, he called me and said, I have your violin. Just exactly wow. like that. <laughs> I said, but wait, Paul, I, uh, I I don't have my financing in order. Mm-hmm. I'm just starting. This is supposed to be a many months or possibly years process. What do you mean you have my violin? He says, uh, this can't wait. I have your violin. So, and, and he's not just, you know, being a salesman. He just, he really, he knew. I wish there were a matchmaking service as effective as, as Paul. If there were, <laughs> he, he would be a multi-billionaire, I'm sure, by now. This is one of the ideas I really wanted to try and unpack in today's episode. What does it really take to build that relationship between a person and, well, for branding's sake, let's call it a curious object? You have a very interesting violin here for us to talk about. So this it's, is this is an Amati. That's right. It's a, a violin that's made in 1620. 1620. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Paul Becker of the Chicago firm Carl Becker & Son. Do you think that there are personality traits that correspond to different qualities in a musician or in a in an instrument that's right for a particular musician and someone who's disposed to you know make a lot of jokes likely to like an instrument that sounds a particular way or or is it is it more subtle than that is there something deeper rooted wow i i i would say that um it's very difficult to figure out a personality trait that matches a style Uh but the right instrument exposes the person's inner emotions. Mm. And it doesn't always match their outer, what they put out there. And if you think this all sounds pretty abstract, well, Paul at least thinks it makes a big difference. Oh, it's amazing. You hear it across the hall or down the room. I can tell when someone really attaches to something. Yeah, yeah. This has been a bonus segment of the podcast Curious Objects from Antiques Magazine. Listen to the rest of the episode called Making Music on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we'll be back with a new episode of the Object Podcast next month. Thank you very much for listening.